0: Welcome to our Soul Food Podcast, a ministry of Calvary Chapel, Princeton, West Virginia. Sorry about that. My voice is going. Thank you, Vicky. <clears throat> Father, we thank you that we can now turn to your word, for it is by your word and through your Holy Spirit that we can live the Christian life. It is truly a light for our path, and we live in a dark place. So I pray that you would illuminate us this morning, help us to put into practice some of the things that we learn. We ask in your name, amen. <clears throat> Welcome back to our study in Second Samuel. I hope you enjoyed hearing our founding pastor, Chris Vanover, last week. I've always said that he puts the fun in fundamental. If you remember, when we were last together, we left King David, who was inconsolable because of the death of his son, Absalom. The last words that we heard from David are some of the saddest in the entire scripture, where he bemoans Absalom with these words. "O my son, Absalom, my son, my son, Absalom, would I have died instead of you? O Absalom, my son, my son. I'm sure that every parent in here can understand the heartbreak of David. It's always a good idea to consider ourselves and how we may react in a situation before we pass judgment on someone else. As the old saying goes, before you criticize someone, walk a mile in their shoes. Of course, one guy said, Before you criticize someone, first walk a mile in their shoes. That way you'll be a mile away from them, plus you'll have their shoes. There's always a smart aleck in the crowd, isn't there? But here's where things get a little sticky. Although we can understand David's sorrow, the son who was killed was a rebel and a threat to the kingdom. Not only that, the people loyal to David had risked their very lives to bring David back to his rightful place upon the throne. But now, instead of a joyous coronation, they are made to feel like, in the words of verse 3, humiliated cowards who run from the battle. All that to say, sometimes life can get very complicated. When Christians pray for the kingdom of God, we are praying for the return of our king, the Lord Jesus Christ. On the night before his execution, Jesus promised his disciples that he would also come again. We have seen how that night was in important ways, like the darkest day in David's life, when he was also rejected by his own people, the nation of Israel, Chapter 19 tells of David's return to Jerusalem after a forced exile caused by his son Absalom. David's son Absalom is now dead and the armies have been defeated. So King David is returning to Jerusalem to take his rightful place on the throne of Israel. But David's return finds the people of Israel in various states of mind, and in various states of preparedness for his return, and in some ways this is going to be a disappointment. There was a problem with the victory that King David's men had won over Absalom. You see, the king still loved Absalom very much, and the cost of the victory had been Absalom's death. The victory, or justice in the biblical sense of making things right, was therefore not received with joy by David, but with grief. Here is something for us to think about this morning. How is it that we are always wanting things and often when we finally get them they turn out to be a bitter pill for us to swallow. For example, David wanted to overthrow his enemies because he was in this case challenged to vindicate his own throne. This was no flight or no fight of his own forcing He was obliged to meet the insubordination and the revolt of his son. We could say, David, you wanted to be rid of your enemies, and now it is so. Yes, David would say, I wanted to be rid of my enemies, but not in that way. And there it is again. It's often in some other way that we want our desire granted. What's the application for us this morning? Like David, if we are Christians, we should all desire God's will for our lives above everything else. But here's the rub. If we want God to have his rightful place upon the throne of our hearts, that will mean that sometimes the people and the things that we may love the most, if they are in contradiction for God's will for our lives, those things or people will have to die. I, of course, don't mean we are to physically kill anyone. I wanted to make sure I was recorded saying that just for the sake of the legality of it. Oh, no, Pastor! Oh, no, officer, Pastor Bill told me to kill my neighbor. But some people may need to die in terms of their influence upon us if they are trying to pull us away from a godly life. How about things? Let me give you a rather mundane example. I used to love to play chess, but to be competitive, I'd have to play at least one hour a day. Then one day about seven or eight years ago, the Lord gave me an option. I could continue to play chess, or I could spend that time studying and reading good books. Now, is it sinful to play chess? No. But for me, it was better for my soul and the ministry to lay that down, and so chess had to die. Now I only play maybe two or three times a year, and mostly because Shane Cadle bugs me at the church picnic to play because he gets some perverse delight in beating me now. Not that I'm, you know, bitter, you understand. What I want us to see is that if I wanted a closer walk with God, but I didn't actually expect for things to really have to die, which is really pretty silly considering the one that I follow had this to say in Matthew 10:37. Jesus says, he who loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. He who loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And he who does not take his cross and follow after me is not worthy of me. He who has found his life will lose it, and he who has lost his life for my sake will find it. So with that rather long-winded introduction, let's get into verse 1. Don't worry, I'll be done in time for the recital. That was a nervous type of laughter there. And Joab was told, Behold, the king is weeping and mourning for Absalom. So the victory that day was turned into mourning for all the people. For the people heard it said that day, the king is grieved for his son. And the people stole back into the city that day as people who are ashamed steal away when they flee in battle. Joab is told that David is still weeping and mourning for Absalom. We are told that the victory that day was turned into mourning because of the death of the king's son. As I read that, my mind went back to another victory that was met with mourning because of the death of a king's son. Isn't that exactly what happened at the crucifixion of Christ? To the casual observer, the death of Jesus on the cross was nothing more than the sad end of a radical backwoods preacher who got in over his head, made the wrong people angry, and ended up being executed because of it. But we know that it was much more than that. At the time of his death, everyone was hopeless and confused. They were either hurting or hiding or both. It seemed like anything but a victory, and yet that is exactly what it was. Later, concerning this victory, the Apostle Paul would write, Having wiped out the handwriting of requirements that was against us, which was contrary to us, and he has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross, having disarmed principalities and powers, he made a public a publical, that's a new word I just made up, feel free to use it. He made a public spectacle of them triumphing over them in it. One commentator wrote to the eye of reason the cross is the center of sorrow, the lowest depth of shame. To the Jew, a stumbling block, and to the Greek, foolishness. How different, however, to the eye of faith, where it is a token of glory, a field of triumph, the chariot in which Christ rode when he led captivity captive. Verse 3 says, And the people stole back into the city that day, as people who are ashamed steal away when they flee in battle. Doesn't that also sound just like the disciples of Christ that night? This is John 20. Then the same day at evening, being the first day of the week, when the doors were shut where the disciples were assembled, why? For fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood in the midst of them and said to them, Peace be with you. Now I can't say for sure that the disciples were ashamed, but it certainly wouldn't surprise me. Think about it. What if for the last three years you followed a man you were absolutely convinced was the son of God? And now he's dead without fulfilling any of the promises you had believed in. At least that's how it seemed at that moment. Don't you think you might feel a sense of shame that you had given your life to what certainly now seemed like a completely failed venture? I don't know. I'll leave that all up to your consideration. I just thought the similarities were pretty fascinating. But I what some people call a word nerd. I love stuff like that. Look at verse 4 with me. But the king covered his face, and the king cried out with a loud voice, O my son Absalom, O Absalom, my son, my son. Then Joab came into the house to the king and said, Today you have disgraced all your servants, who today have saved your life, the lives of your sons and daughters, the lives of your wives, and the lives of your concubines, and that you love your enemies and hate your friends. For you have declared today that you regard neither princes nor servants. For today I perceive that if Absalom had lived and all of us had died today, that would have pleased you well. Now, therefore, arise, go out, and speak comfort to your servants. For I swear by the Lord, if you do not go out, not one will stay with you this night. And that will be worse for you than all the evil that has befallen you from your youth until now. Verse 4 of chapter 19 reminds us of the end of chapter 18. It said in verse 33 of the last chapter that David was deeply moved over the death of his son Absalom. Do you know where we read those words almost identically at the death of a man whose name means God is my help? We know him as Lazarus. And Jesus came to the grave and it said that he was also deeply moved. And there we find the shortest verse in the English Bible, just two words. Jesus wept. And so to David, the battle was anything but a victory. The Scottish pastor Andrew Bernard used to say, Let us be as watchful after the victory as before the battle. What I think he's saying is, it's possible to win the battle, but lose the victory. Which is what happened to David after Joab defeated Absalom and his army. What should have been a day of celebration for David's army became a confused time of embarrassment and shame as the people stole back into the city as if they had been humiliated by defeat. And think about it. David's attitude must have puzzled some of his followers because they saw Absalom as a liar, a murderer, a traitor, and a rebel. Now certainly, we expect a father to grieve over the tragic death of his son, and to a degree, overlook his son's mistakes and sins. But leaders still must lead, even if their hearts are completely broken. That's one of the prices that you have to pay as a leader. We find another instance of this in Leviticus chapter 10, where we read, Now Nadab and Abihu, the sons of Aaron, took their respective firepans and after putting fire in them, placed incense on it and offered strange fire before the Lord, which he had not commanded them. And fire came out of the presence of the Lord and consumed them, and they died before the Lord. But now listen to verse 6. Then Moses said to Aaron and to his son Eleazar and Ithamar, Do not uncover your heads or tear your clothes, so that you will not die, and that he will not become wrathful against all the congregation. But your kinsmen, the whole house of Israel, shall bewail the burning that the Lord has brought about. What he was saying was, neither father nor brothers were to mourn the deaths of Nadab and Abihu, because the implication would then be that God was somehow unfair and what he had done we read in Revelation 19 too, that the multitudes in heaven proclaim this righteous and true are your judgments O Lord now they have the benefit of seeing the full picture and understanding that God's ways are absolutely perfect all of the time because you see this side of eternity Our vision is so very limited. It even that which may appear to be a tragedy can all be part of God's bigger plan. That is why Aaron was not to mourn. And much like that, David the father forgot that he was also David the king. And that he still had his crown because the brave soldiers had put their the good of the nation ahead of their own personal interest. These same people had wept with their king earlier as together they climbed the Mount of Olives and fled from Jerusalem. But that was different at that time because then they were sharing the sorrow at the loss of the kingdom. But now they are completely humiliated. It would seem that their victory was now the cause of their king's grief. They had risked their own lives for the king and now they were made to feel like they had somehow acted against him. They came into the city not like the victors that they really were but instead like thieves. Boldly, Joab turned (laughs) up the heat by attributing David's treatment of his people as being unfair. He said, Because you love those who hate you and you hate those who love you. Now, this was a horrible caricature with a grain of truth in it. Absalom clearly hated his father, while David just as clearly loved his son. Now, David's servants obviously loved their king. And because of that, in Joab's judgment, David's mistreatment of them amounted to hatred. This was an unfair exaggeration, but it may have reasonably represented the perceptions of those who had fought for King David. These were harsh words from Joab. The basic charge was that David had mistreated his servants terribly. They had saved his life and the life of his entire household. But instead of the praise and the thanks that they may have reasonably expected, They found the king they served withdrawn and in mourning because of what they had done for him. He had made them ashamed of serving him. Again, this was unfair, but it was true that David's grief had so overwhelmed him at this point that he was given no attention to his faithful subjects and what they had done for him. Joab capped his rebuke with this allegation, For today I know... That if Absalom were alive, and all of us were dead today, you would be well pleased with that. Joab was angry. He understood the politics of that day. Because he knew that had Absalom lived and had been given the opportunity, every one of David's servants would have been killed. According to Joab, David's behavior was telling everyone that he would have preferred that outcome. And while I think that Joab could have been a little more sensitive with his words to David, I do feel like this was something that David needed to hear. Proverbs tells us that faithful are the wounds of a friend, but the kisses of an enemy are deceitful. That means an enemy will not tell you what you want, or, or an enemy will tell you what you want to hear, while a friend will tell you what you need to hear. Oscar Wilde said, an enemy will stab you in the back, but a friend will stab you in the front. Just a while back, John and Rita Viscop loved me enough to confront me with something that I didn't want to hear. Now, they were respectful of the position that the Lord has put me in, and they did it the right way, but it still stung. And that's why they're not here today. I kicked them out for daring to oppose me. So tremble ye all the parts of the earth. Just kidding, they're out of town. You're probably thinking, I hope they confronted you about your bad jokes and terrible puns. Um, It wasn't, by the way. But they didn't tell me what I wanted to hear. They told me at that time what I needed to hear, to which I thanked them later. And I hope we all have people in our lives who love us that much to risk doing something like that. Well, what should we think of Joab's forceful speech? I know it's going in your head what it was. Uh, Was he right? Was he wise? Should he perhaps give a little more sympathy for the grieving father? Or was the situation as serious as he had obviously thought so that there was no room for indulging David's sentimentality? Opinions are likely to differ on those questions. The truth is that David's love for Absalom was not able to save him from Joab's justice. And Joab's sense of justice had no space for David's love of his son. The situation, quite frankly, was impossible. Verse 8, please. Then the king arose and sat in the gate, and they told all the people, saying, There is the king sitting in the gate. So all the people came before the king, for every one of Israel had fled to his tent. Joab's short but cutting speech had the desired effect of jolting the king back to reality. And David took his place at the gate where his men came to him and where he acknowledged their service, at least by his presence. There is no mention of David speaking to the people as Joab had demanded, and perhaps in his sorrow, That was just beyond him. Nonetheless, he allowed all the people to see him, but the scene was anything but joyful. But the people had their king again. He was no longer withdrawn from them. But what next? Would the victory won by David's men translate into the restoration of his kingdom? How would that come about? Much is still left uncertain. Once again, it was a little like the death of Jesus. Victory led to mourning, and it was very difficult to see how Jesus could really return as the king. As a side note, one thing I really love about David is he can always take a rebuke. And amazingly, David's kind-hearted attitude towards his enemies did not translate into a soft attitude toward his own sins. Because I found that usually people who are soft with others are soft with themselves, and those hardest on themselves are even harder on others. But David was different. He was gracious with others, but he was still honest with himself. I believe David's greatness was simply this. For as much as he sinned, and he did sin, He never failed to own up to that sin. I can't find a single instance in the Bible where David was rightly rebuked for his failings, where he then failed to heed that rebuke. For instance, when Nathan confronts David for his adultery and murder, David, after he sees what Nathan is up to, quickly laments, I have sinned against the Lord. When Joab sends a woman of Tekoa to change David's mind about bringing Absalom back, he listens to her. And in today's account, when Joab rebukes David for loving his treacherous son more than his loyal servants, David does what Joab tells him to do. Now granted, Joab was often wrong in his advice to David, but when he was right, David could see that and still change course. Who knows? Maybe David's son Solomon was thinking of his father when he wrote Proverbs 17.10, which reads, A rebuke goes deeper into one who has understanding than a hundred blows does to a fool. Look at verse 9 with me. Now all the people were in a dispute throughout all the tribes of Israel, saying, The king saved us from the hand of our enemies, he delivered us from the hand of the Philistines, and now he has fled from the land because of Absalom. But Absalom, whom we anointed over us, has died in battle. Now, therefore, why do you say nothing about bringing back the king? It's likely that all the tribal leaders who had foolishly followed Absalom were wondering what David would do to them now that he has regained his throne. The death of the pretender Absalom focused the minds of those who had once been seduced by him. Absalom's glamour and his promises are now dead and buried. His arrogance, along with his beautiful mane of hair, are no more. The hopes and dreams the people had attached to him were dashed, and their misguided allegiance is now apparent. At last, the people remember David the king that they have rejected. In this, I also see a picture of the greater than David, Jesus Christ. About 250 years later, the prophet Isaiah would write these words. He was despised and forsaken of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And like one whom men hide their face, he was despised, and we did not esteem him. And just like it says in verse 9, our king, King Jesus, has also saved us from the hands of our enemies. Now what enemies do I speak of this morning? How about the enemy of our old unredeemed life, and the last great enemy, the enemy of death itself? How should such knowledge stimulate our hearts to respond I think that just like verse 10, it should make us to also want to bring back the king to his rightful place. You know, sadly, we could say that about many churches today. Why don't you bring the king back? Did you know that King Jesus has been kicked out of many churches today? There are churches that have removed any songs that mention the word blood. They say that's barbaric and antiquated. We don't want a bloody religion. Some churches say it's intolerant to say that Jesus is the one and the only way to salvation. They are universalists in their approach by saying that many roads can lead to God. Some places need to bring the king back or else they're not really a church, at least not in the biblical sense. They are simply a moose club without the beer and the bad dancing. But I want to apply this to us this morning. Maybe in some of our lives here this very morning, we also need to bring the king back. Maybe like the church in Ephesus, you have left your first love. Let me read you that account. In Revelation chapter 2, we read, To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, The one who holds the seven stars in his right hand, the one who walks among the seven golden lampstands, says this. I know your deeds and your toil and perseverance, and that you cannot tolerate evil men. And you put to the test those who call themselves apostles, and they are not, and you found them to be false. And you have perseverance and have endured for my name's sake, and have not grown weary. But I have this against you that you have left your first love. Therefore, remember from where you have fallen and repent and do the deeds that you did at first or else I'm going to come and will remove your lampstand out of its place unless you repent. Notice he says they have not lost their first love. He says they have left their first love. As you know, it is my theological stance that if you are truly converted and regenerated, you cannot lose your salvation. But you can leave it for a time. And if you do, while still being saved, you will be miserable by leaving that place of fellowship until that time you repent and come back. And during those times, I personally have left that place of fellowship in my first love God has been faithful to discipline me out of his love for me and his desire for that relationship to once again be restored. I love Spurgeon here as we close. He writes, Many have lost the comfortable comfortable presence of the Lord Jesus Christ. Some have long dwelt in the cold shade of suspended fellowship. Why speak ye not a word of bringing the king back? If your soul has been nipped with the frost of a long and dreary winter, if the sun of righteousness do but cross the line and manifest his meridian splendor, your summer will return at once. Let the king come, and all his court will follow all the graces that display themselves where the Lord of grace is revealed. I think what he's warning of there is the danger of a slow erosion. Of our faith. I've said in the past I don't think that we normally just blow it out of nowhere. Normally there is a slow process that brings us to the point of that failure. We could say the devil works far more skillfully not by explosion but by erosion. The danger I think we face as we grow older in the faith is we can know a lot of Bible facts And we can know how to speak Christianese, but we can also become stale and lifeless if we are not careful. There is no beatitude that says, blessed are the crusty. We can go through the motion, but there is no longer any emotion. So what if that's me this morning? What do I do? You do the same thing Jesus told the church at Ephesus to do. You remember from where you have fallen, you repent of your sins, and you return to your first love once again. It's really that simple. Remember, repent, and return. And if you need to do that, please talk to me or someone here this morning. Father, I pray that everyone within the sound of my voice knows you. But if anyone does not, Lord, if anyone does know you but they have walked away for a time, I pray that this would be the day they would be able to circle on their calendar, that they once again knew the living God. I pray, Father, you would take all the words that were said. Let them go deep into our hearts, but just don't let them be Bible facts. Let them be things that we build our lives around by actually doing the word and not just listening to it and so deceiving ourselves. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. This being the uh, first Sunday of the month, we'll be having communion together. Ask Elder Dave and Pastor John to come up.